If you'll find your place in Luke chapter 9, we're going to look at Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 18. Let's stand as we open the Word of God together. Beginning with verse 18, we're continuing our series, Vision 2020, specifically this month, talking about a vision for the cross, and today getting personal with that vision of the cross. Last week, we talked about the necessity and the nature of the cross, but today I want us to get a little bit more personal talk about a personal vision for the cross. So beginning with verse 18, it says, And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, and others say that one, uh, you're one of the old prophets that has risen. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and be raised on the third day. It sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? Verse 23, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We have sought this morning to lift high the cross in our worship in our singing, and in our praises to you. Lord, we have to say with the Apostle Paul, we have nothing else to boast in but the cross of Jesus Christ, and for that we are grateful. Lord, I've often prayed at the beginning of a message that you would hide me behind the cross, and never is it as important as it is this morning. We would lift high the cross of Christ and find our identity there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I was getting ready to preach one year when a friend of mine who used to always remind me to make a beeline for the cross, he would say, Robbie, just preach the cross. Robbie, just give him the cross. I was getting ready to preach in North Carolina, and before I made my way, as I was greeting people, before I made my way to the pulpit, he made a statement. He said, I put your sermon outline on the pulpit. And I thought, that's great. His name was Jay. That's great, Jay. I'm glad you wrote me a sermon. That, that's awesome. I guess Tina had that week off or something. But I'm glad you wrote me a good sermon. And uh, I thought, I wonder what he did. What, what, what kind of outline has he put up there? Maybe it's an announcement. Maybe, maybe it's his anniversary, and he just wants me to make a note of that or something like that. And I got up to preach, and he had just kind of drawn a picture of Calvary's cross and placed it there. And it was an awesome reminder for me. And, and I can almost envision that every time I stand up to preach, and there's a reminder. Preach the cross. There's got to be a cross element in every message. The cross element is not what was going to be popular in Jesus' message from Luke chapter 9 through the rest of this gospel. I want to put a picture up here where you can see it. It's already, well, I think it's available. There it is. It's, it's a famous painting. Rembrandt used to love to paint crosses, evidently. And and this is a picture known as the three crosses. 
And though you can't see the faces, critics tell us, you can't see the faces well from here anyway, critics tell us who have studied Rembrandt's painting entitled The Three Crosses, that Rembrandt actually painted his own face into this painting, that he's one of those faces in the crowd that's crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't enough for him just to be an artist and say, I'm painting and and capturing that moment. He says, I'm in that moment. And church, I want to remind you this morning as we look at that image, you and I were in that moment. We like to sing the song, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And that is true. We were on his mind. We were on his heart. He had become sin for us. We'll come to Luke chapter 9. Jesus is with his disciples. And the focus of his attention and his messages begins to shift to the cross. At this point, he's beginning to set his face like flint toward the cross. After he had calmed the storm, which word had gotten out about that, after the healing of a woman who had touched the hem of his garment, the raising of a little girl from the dead, I think that's one of the most powerful moments in all of Scripture, when Jesus takes the hand of a little girl and he says, little girl, get up. And this little dead girl comes to life and still has her life on this earth ahead of her. That word obviously got out. Jesus fed the 5,000, and crowds began to follow him. And Luke's story from chapter 9, especially when we get into chapter 10 on, begins to shift. And instead of gaining momentum and gaining the crowd's attention, all of a sudden he begins to see the crowds begin to filter away. Much of the crowd that followed Jesus to this point followed him because of the miracles they had seen And they had seen him bring a dead person back to life or had heard testimony of that. They had witnessed many of them, the feeding of the 5,000. Many certainly were there at that moment. But they were following him perhaps for all the wrong reasons. They didn't understand what he was all about. The crowd needed to get beyond a superficial, self-centered, shallow exercise of religion. I want to repeat that because I want us to think about the 21st century church. This crowd needed to get beyond a superficial, self-centered, shallow exercise of religion. So Jesus begins to predict the cross, his cross, and he invites his followers to come and identify with the crucified life. I think of the Apostle Paul when He says, I want to know, in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, but not only that, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to him in his death, that I also might be like him in his resurrection. So here's the question that we want to answer this morning. How do we get beyond superficial, self-centered, shallow exercise of religion. I believe it's uh, found in the words of a song that Steve Green sang back in the 80s. Embrace the cross. Embrace the cross. How do we do that? I think the text gives us three ways that we can embrace the cross this morning. First of all, we must be clear with our profession of Jesus Christ. We must be abundantly clear with our profession of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question. Are you abundantly clear with your profession of Jesus Christ, as Jesus himself as the Christ? In verse 18, Luke quickly reminds us that Jesus was always found praying before big events. 
when we look back at verse 18, it says that it happened as he was alone praying. Jesus, as busy as he was in the crowds, were always following. He found time to get alone. He found time to pray. And that's a different sermon for another day, but we need to be sure that we, before we try to attempt anything for God, find time alone, begin to pray and seek his face, seek his strength. And then Jesus posed this question in verse 18. He says, who do the crowds say that I am? I want to know what the crowds are saying. The assumption here is that by this time, the crowd's talking. We've got their attention. The crowd's saying something. And I believe there is a further assumption, reading between the lines here, and that is that more often than not, the crowd's wrong. But at least they're talking. They're probably asking the right questions, but they're getting the wrong answers. I find it interesting that today, I believe that in, in what is beginning to be called a post-Christian world, there are seasons where the crowds are talking. I mean, have you ever seen so many Bible-themed movies come out at one time? The crowd's talking. Now, more often than not, the crowd is wrong, but they're talking. And so we can ask the question, rather than getting upset that there are a lot of them that are kind of getting it wrong, and they are, we can say, hey, they're talking. And while they're talking, let's see if we can answer some difficult questions. And again, we're going to give you a tool when you leave this morning. Some of you already received a few weeks ago to help you answer some of these tough questions. But many are talking. Most of them are wrong. What are they saying? Verse 19. Well, that you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, you're one of the prophets. It's the same account that we're given in Matthew chapter 16. Here's the deal with concerning... All of these prophets that are mentioned that aren't mentioned, you're, you're one of the prophets. You're a great prophet. Whether reincarnated, we, we don't know whether you've come back from heaven. All we know is they're saying, we think you're a great prophet. The prophet answer is not a wrong answer. The prophet answer is an inadequate answer. Jesus was much more than a prophet, but he was a prophet nonetheless. It's inadequate because it doesn't have the message of Messiah. Professing Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the, the Greek word Christos for the Hebrew Messiah, uh, Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God. That gets a little bit more specific. It becomes a little bit more personal. But they weren't given the John 14, 6. You know, you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life, and no man comes to the Father except through you. It was, now you're a great prophet, you're a great teacher. Now, Josh McDowell, as many of you have heard of, uh, said, and he argues, as C.S. Lewis argues, that Jesus is Lord, liar, or lunatic. You can't say that he was just a good man. He didn't leave us that option. He was much more than a prophet. He claimed to be the Son of God with power, and if he was not so, anything else makes him out to be a liar or a lunatic. And so when you get to verse 20, he, he personalizes it with these disciples to get a clear profession of where they were in this process and, of course, how the Spirit of God was working in their life. And so he said to them, but who do you, and there's an emphatic, who do you say that I am? He, he includes the word for you there, which was not necessary in the Greek construction in this language, but it was an emphasis, it was emphatic. Who do you personally Let's get personal. Let's, let's speak right into your heart and into your life. Who do you, who have you decided that I am? 
And church, we've got to come to the same place today. It's not enough that the crowds are saying one thing or another. We have to answer the question, who do we personally, each one of us individually, say that Jesus is? And Peter's answer, of course, is you are the Christ, the Christos. You are the anointed one. And then in verse 21, he begins to warn them all not to tell anyone else at this time. And by the way, Jesus wasn't trying just to avoid the cross. He knew the cross was coming. But at this point... When everybody was enthusiastic, when everybody was following him, when everybody was getting excited about Jesus possibly being the anointed one, the one who was coming, they would have probably, if they had been given permission to really go public with all of this, they would have probably tried to overthrow the government at that time and establish Jesus as king. And that's not what he came for in his first coming. And so he's not trying to avoid the cross. He's trying to avoid a political coup and overthrow He needed time to communicate a message because his message is shifting to the message of the cross. And so you get to verse 22. And in verse 22, he begins to explain, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes. And he very specifically says, must be killed and raised the third day. This often seemed to go right over the disciples' heads. They seemed to miss it. Jesus was establishing First, his first coming, when he came to die on a cross for our sins, be laid in a borrowed tomb and rise from the grave, he was establishing his kingdom in the hearts and lives of men and women. His kingdom will one day be visibly established upon this earth. That day has not come yet. But he was beginning to draw people to come and be a part of his kingdom through faith in what he accomplished when he paid for their sins. All that we talked about last week, the necessity and the nature of the cross, that he had to go to that place. He wanted them to be clear with their profession. A lot of us would say this morning, yes, I'm a Christian. Is that enough profession? When I think about the word we live in saying, I am a Christian, I am Christian, 80% of the, the nation claims the Christian faith and, and uh, probably less than 20% do anything to identify with the cross life of Christ. Anybody catch any of the Masters tournament this week? I like to watch. The, I watched a little bit of the golf yesterday. I just like the scenery at Augusta National, quite honestly. Could you imagine, after watching that, I thought, you know, I, that was beautiful. That'd be fun to be a part. I would love to visit Augusta National and love to play golf there. Probably would never be invited to, but I would love to play golf there. That would be a great time. I, I would love to be identified as a golfer. Wouldn't that be awesome? What if I told, I just started telling people, you know what, I'm a golfer. I golf. I'm, I'm a golfer. I believe a lot of folks would say, really, when's the last time you golfed? Well, when I lived in North Carolina there between Wilmington and Myrtle Beach, there's more golf courses per capita than anywhere else in the world. And so when I lived in that area, you know, I probably played golf a dozen times in about four years. Got in trouble for it one time. You can ask Tina about that. But, I, you know, I played golf. Since I've been in Georgia, let's say I've been here about 14 years now. I've played golf uh, maybe three times. So I'm a golfer. I'm a, I'm a, I actually, Randy, I got below 100 one time. And I think I was with you. I think it was like a, what, maybe a 99. Now, don't ask Randy how many mulligans I had. But still, it was, you know, I golf, play, played golf. I'm a golfer. A lot of people are that way about their Christian faith. 
Well, I've seen it on TV. Are you a part of a Bible-believing church? Are you growing? Are, are you being discipled in the faith? Well, I watched Joel Osteen. Man, well, I'm sure your theology is spot on, right? I'm a Christian. I watch, I watch TV preachers. I watch worship. I know a little bit about what's going on. My name's on a church roll somewhere. And back when I lived in North Carolina, I went to church, you know, probably a dozen times in about three or four years. Or wherever they moved from. Are you identified as a Christ follower by your actions, by your life? Is there something more to it than just being vaguely familiar with it? We've got to be clear with our profession that we believe Christ. We confess him constantly in our worship and in our witness and in our homes. It is our desire to pass it along. It's not because it's our parents' profession. Well, I was raised that way. I was brought up to believe the Bible and to believe in Jesus, and because I was raised that way. Listen, there was a season in in, in the last century or so where that kind of worked a little bit. (laughs) Not a lot, but, but people kind of believed what they were brought up to believe. What mom and dad believed, you know, hey, give me that old time religion. It was good enough for grandma and grandpa, and mom and dad is good enough for me. Folks, this generation, they're not bent that way. If the profession is not clear to them, if they don't know why they believe what they believe, they're not going to hold on to it. Our young people that are coming up through our WANA program, our student ministry, and all those things that they are exposed to and, and children's worship and everything else that we're doing, if somewhere along the way it doesn't not only become their mom and dad's faith, if it's not personally their profession, by the time they get to be seniors in high school, start driving, maybe when they start college, they're going to check out on us and we're not going to see them. It's got to be personalized to them. They've got to have a clear profession of faith in Christ. I know that I have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my Lord, my Savior, and I am going to be clear with that profession. This is what I believe. This is why I believe it. Christ is who he said he was. Secondly, we must be committed to the process of the cross. And you might be asking the question, well, why a process? Because he uses the word daily. Look back at the text when we get to verse 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily take up your cross. Now, taking up the cross, that sounds a little bit harsh, a little bit difficult. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 14 and verse 27, Jesus is getting so clear with repeating this message that he says, if you aren't willing to carry your cross, you cannot be my disciple. If you're not willing to carry the cross, and that involves, as this text says, denying yourself, you've got to deny that self-centered life. You've got to deny that shallow religious life. In your private life, at home, in your work, in your school, you're denying that self-centered shallow life, and you're identifying with the cross of Jesus Christ very boldly, literally even saying, I would be willing to die if need be, I am taking up my cross, the call of Christ on my life to live a crucified life and live unto him. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11 explains that when war breaks out in the heavenlies during the tribulation period, the saints, those who have come to faith during that time, they overcome the enemy by the word of the testimony, the blood of the lamb, and they love not their lives to the death. They love not their lives. They say, you know what, I'm willing to die for Christ if need be. Well, pastor, we would never be put in that situation, 
And how would I know if I'd be willing to die for Christ? I always answer that question with this. Are you willing to live for him? Because if you're not willing to live for him in a world where it's tough to live for him and becoming more and more difficult every day, then obviously you would not be willing to die for him because you love your life more than you love him. Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. And then he goes on to say, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For Paul to live was Christ. How do you fill in that blank? If you were to put your name there, for me to live is, how would you fill in that blank? If people observe your life, what are you living for? Well, I'm living for my family. That's not enough. I'm living for my kids. I'm living for my future. I'm living for my career. I'm living for sports. How do you fill in the blank? If you put anything in that blank but Christ, for me to live is Christ. You're missing the point of identifying with the cross. We must be committed to this process and die to self daily. It is a daily process. Give our lives to Jesus to be expendable for him. Robert Coleman tells the story, some of you have heard me share this years ago, of a uh, little girl who had a certain disease, and her brother had actually had this disease and beaten the disease, but for some reason it had gotten hold of his sister to a greater degree. And what she needed was a blood transfusion from someone who had had the very same disease. And so they went to her brother and explained, we'll call him Johnny, to little Johnny, hey, do you, would you be willing to, to give your blood for your sister? Would you be willing to help us with this blood transfusion? Because if we could put your blood into her, then it could save her life. And the boy hesitated for a moment and then finally said, okay, I'll do it. And so they got him prepped for surgery, got her, her prepped or for, for the transfusion, got both of them ready, and they began to, to, to put the, uh, the, vein, the, the needle in, in his veins. And he asked the question, he said, okay, how long, doctor, before I die? How long before I die? And the doctor realized for the first moment that this boy didn't realize he was just given some of his blood. He thought he was going to empty his body out of all of his blood, and give it all to his sister, and that he was ultimately going to die as a result of that. He was, oh, no, no, son, you're not going to have to die. You're just giving her your blood. We're so, so, they were so apologetic for not having made that more clear, and were overwhelmed by this fact that the boy had said, you know what? I love my sister so much that if it means giving her all of my life's blood, that's what I'll do. Folks, we need to understand, that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. He died, he gave, he poured out his blood to cover our sins. We all needed a blood transfusion. And now he's saying, I want you to live for me, to live a crucified life where you die to self and come alive for me. And we are committed to this process of daily dying to self. Spurgeon said, there will be no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers on earth. I hear those words, I think of a hymn that we used to sing as an invitation in a little country church when I was growing up. Say the phrase, where he leads me, I will follow. And you said, I will go with him, with him, 
all the way. But the song started with a phrase like this, I can hear my Savior calling. I can hear my Savior calling. I can hear my Savior calling. Take thy cross and follow me. You know, that's not as popular an invitation as as it used to be, is it? Now it's, man, come and receive the abundant life, and it is an abundant life. Come and get on all the joys of the kingdom, and there are joys in the kingdom. But the call, the message is still, take up your cross and follow me. It means you have personally identified with the cross of Christ and obey his call to follow him. Jesus is the priority in your life. And it will be visible in the way that you serve and give of yourself to others. It will be visible in your sanctification, your victory over sin. That means when temptation is coming your way, rather than living in defeat, you say, I am crucified with Christ. I am dead. My old self is dead to sin. I am now alive in him, and I yield to the Spirit of God in my life. And as the Spirit of God begins to guide me to live out the resurrected life of Christ, it's a result of the fact that I died to self daily. I I wish that I could say, church, I'll tell you what everybody needs to do this morning. You need to come down. You need to hit this altar, and all of us just need to die to self. And when we die to self, we're going to leave, and we're going to live in victory from this day on, except for one thing. Luke included the word daily in there. And if you think you can hit this altar and die to self once and not have a daily quiet time, and die to self probably in the middle of the day when somebody crosses you, when that lust comes your way that you didn't expect, when that temptation, when you want to gossip, when you want to talk back to your parents or to your school teachers, if you don't die to self at that moment, then you won't live in victory over sin. We have to take up our cross. We have to die a little bit to self every single day. Then we begin to experience the joy of the abundant life in Christ. Number three, we must... Be courageous with our proclamation of Christ. Be courageous of our proclamation of Christ. He wasn't telling them to be quiet forever. But the timing was important here. Come back to verse 26. It says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his own glory, in the Father's and of the holy angels. There's a willingness here to give our lives to proclaim Him. And if we're going to proclaim Him here, that will be evidence that we're going to be with Him there. Paul, in his great dissertation on salvation, by the way, if you're ever wondering, how do do I really get my right mind around this thing called salvation? Study the book of Romans. But Paul says at the very outset in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of what? The gospel, because it is the power of God into salvation. He says, I'm not ashamed of that gospel. I'm going to tell everybody and the one I have believed in and how they can come to faith in him. Are we courageous with our proclamation of Christ? With all the violence that's in the world today, some of us remember in 1999. I remember this taking place because... I believe it was April 20th, 19, maybe it was the 19th, but I remember the day this took place because I was actually having lunch with students in a high school in North Carolina. But after I got back home that evening, found out that there had been a school shooting in Columbine in Colorado. Later on, as reports described the events on that day, it was 
told that a young lady by the name of Cassie Bernal was asked by one of the shooters named Eric Harris. Cassie was a very outspoken Christian, very bold with her faith. She was asked, do you still believe? And her reply was just one word, yes. And she gave her life on that day. What is your persecution? When is it tough for you to take a stand in your school? When is it tough for you to take a stand for Christ in your workplace? In your home? What kind of persecution do you face? Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, and don't be ashamed of me before this world. Because if you're ashamed of me before the people in this world, that's good evidence that you're not going to be in the kingdom with me. Perhaps the consequences of proclaiming Christ and being very, very public with our proclamation, we're not willing to bear those consequences, but they sure beat the consequences of not identifying with Christ and not knowing him, not spending eternity with him. Let's remember the gospel. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness. See, we're not saved by the words that we're speaking, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What is, that, what is that all about? What Paul is saying to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 10 as he's explaining to the Jews between two chapters where he's brokenhearted over the Jews not coming to faith in Christ, he's saying, listen, if you identify with Christ, if you experience genuine, authentic faith, you're going to proclaim it. You're going to tell someone you can't keep it to yourself. That's the cross life. That's the crucified life, being willing to identify with Christ. You have a personal vision of the cross, a personal vision. It's not mom and dad's religion, not grandparents' religion. You have come to the cross and said, yes, Lord, I'll take up my cross and follow you. Would you bow your heads this morning with me?